Hello and welcome to the London School of Theology podcast. You are listening to our weekly chapel service. Today's speaker is Dr. Julie Robb. London School of Theology. Forming disciples. Resourcing churches. Impacting society. Hi, good morning everyone. Um, Thank you for that introduction, Alison. I'm sure it's completely undeserved, but it's very nice to have it nevertheless. Um, And yes, so many of you don't know me, but... I don't think I need to say any more about myself, but the last time I stood here in front of LST Chapel, I was actually an undergraduate, and I was a level six student. It was called Group 8 then, and only a few people in this room will actually remember the existence of Group 6, Group 7, Group 8, but I was Group 8. And I had to lead the morning act of worship, which at that time happened at 9 a.m. I think it was 9 a.m., it might have been 8.50, but it was early in the morning anyway, for 20 minutes, and we were given feedback on that by one of the members of faculty. Now, I don't remember anything about the specific feedback given, and actually, thinking about it, I don't actually think there was very much given, except that the faculty member, who is no longer here, but I will not name him, said that he liked my hair. So it's my prayer this morning that you actually remember a little bit more than my hair. Though if you would like to compliment me on my hair, I'm outside and afterwards and you are more than welcome to do that. But isn't God good? God is good because, you know what, the music, Esther and myself did not get together to decide on how this was going to go. But you know what I'm going to pray as my opening prayer? May the words of my mouth and this meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Through this term, as you all know, we've been thinking about what it means or looks like to become like Christ. And when Alison asked me if I'd speak at chapel and said I could choose whatever topic I'd like, that's a dreadful thing to give to a preacher, do you know that? Because your mind just goes like, well, where do I start? Anyway, I prayed about it, and after some thought and so on, I decided on the topic of speech and the use of the tongue. Now, I hesitate to speak on this topic because precisely anything I say points all my fingers back at me and is the reason I chose to open our time with that prayer from Psalm 19. Of course, for many of us, when we think about what the Bible teaches about speech or the use of the tongue, our our minds instantly go to the chapter 3 of James. That's where you go. And I will be referring to that briefly later. But the passage I believe God wanted me to highlight is that found in our reading today from Paul's letter to the Ephesians. And that passage comes just over halfway through his letter. And as someone once said, and I love this, take a text out of context and all you're left with is a con. And I don't want to give you a con this morning. So we're going to set Paul's teaching here about the speech, use of tongue, in its context of his letter to the Ephesians. Now it so happens that Ephesians is my favourite book of the Bible for a whole variety of reasons. But within the letter, Paul sets out his vision, and it's an incredible vision. It's cosmic, I love that word, cosmic in scope, as the teaching within it incorporates not only how we live on this earth now, but also takes in the heavenly perspective. And within that vision, Paul sets out, it becomes clear that the church or the community of believers is crucial. One commentator put it this way, Broadly speaking, the letter was intended to reinforce its readers' identity 
as participates, participants in the church and to underline their distinctive role and conduct in the world. And as many of you know, this letter to the Ephesians is a prime example of a letter from Paul that neatly divides, in that sense, into two halves. The first three chapters of this letter, recognising, of course, that Paul didn't write in chapters or verses, describes and reinforces the believer's identity as participants in the church. And the second three chapters to their role and conduct. And the second three chapters are given context by the first three. So it's about who we are, who believers are, their identity, not just as Christians, as believers, but as part of the church, and then the consequences of that for their conduct as believers. So we're going to do a kind of whistle-stop tour through Ephesians because I wanted to do that because it's my favourite book. So, hey, and I'm preaching, so I get to do what I want. So isn't that great? It's a bit like lecturing, actually, really. You can just get to do what you want. Anyway, so the beginning of this letter, in verse after Paul's introduced himself and so on, the beginning of this letter in verses 3 to 14, chapter 1, verses 3 to 14, is not only uh, Ephesians, my favourite book, this is my favourite portion of Scripture. It was read at my wedding, and my husband already knows this. It's to be read when the time comes at my funeral, assuming he outlives me, but he might do. So there you are, Tim. You know what to do. And as I read this section, it almost feels to me that Paul has got more and more and more excited about what God has done. It's as though he's going, and God did this, and then he did this. And then he did this, and then he did this. It's, it's just like the language and excitement flow out of his pen. And if it didn't, it's flown out of me, so that's fine. He blesses God for all the blessings that God has lavished on his people. That's the word in verse 8. Now, my concept of lavished is soaking in a bath with bubble bath up to about here, wine, candles, and a book. But you know what? I always drop the book in the bath. So I have to give up on that one because that ruins the book. But anyway, as believers, what have we got in these verses? We have been chosen by God to live holy and blameless lives. That's in verse 4. And when did that happen? Before the creation of the world. We have been chosen by God and adopted by him through Jesus. That's in verse 5. Why? Because it was his pleasure and will. He wanted to do this. We have been redeemed and forgiven in verse 7. Why? Because of his grace, which is so rich and which he has lavished on us. He has chosen to reveal to us his will in verse 9, which is to bring unity to all things in heaven and on, and on earth under Christ. And we, again, we have been chosen in verse 11. Why? In order that we would bring praise to him. Can you believe it? We can bring praise to God that's astonishing because when I look at my life I think no one's going to pray I'm not always going to bring praise to God because of me because I'm a, an unholy mess most of the time but we have been chosen so that we could bring praise to God we have been included in Christ in verse 13 how when we believed the gospel and when we believed we were given his Holy Spirit in verse 14 why as a deposit a guarantee of our inheritance to come so just for a few moments, let those things sink in. They're incredible. 
They're life-changing when we really let what God has blessed us with sink into our beings. This is our identity in Christ. This is your identity in Christ. This is my identity in Christ. It's who we are. People who have been lavishly blessed by God. So Paul's written this extended blessing of God for all that he has done in Christ, in giving salvation. And then he turns, as he does in his letters, to thanksgiving and prayer for the believers to whom he writes. His prayer is that the believers should receive revelation so that they can know what they have in Christ. And what do they need to know? They need to know the hope of his calling, in verse 18, the riches of his glorious inheritance, in verse 18, and in verse 19, God's incomparably great power. Now, why is Paul so sure about God's power? We've sung about it, actually, this morning. The greatest revelation of God's power is that which happened when God raised Jesus from the dead and placed him in the seat of highest honour at the right hand of God, above all cosmic powers that oppose God. And that's chapter 1, verse 21. But even more staggering is what verses 22 to 23 tell us. And I'm reading. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Now that's the first mention, but not the last of the church in this letter. And what does it say? That God has placed everything under Christ's feet and appointed him to be head over everything. So far, so good. But why? Why has he done that? The reason for the church. God has placed everything under Christ's feet for the benefit of the church. And in this statement, Paul shows just how important the church is in God's plan for the cosmos. And who or what is the church? You know the answer. It's people who believe in Christ. It is Christians. It is us. It is we who are part of Christ's body. Our identity is in him and we belong to him. We are, as is frequently stated in this letter, in Christ, in Christo, which is a topic all on its own as to exactly what that means, by what Paul means by that phrase, and I'm not going to get into that here. But if in doubt, you go to the place I always go to, the person I always go to, and that's Conrad. So he's over there, so you can go and see him later. And actually, I did mean to say at the beginning, everything I know about the New Testament, I owe to Conrad because he taught me. So the complaints department is open (laughs) later on if you want to have a word with him. It's all his fault. Anyway, so that's chapter one. And then in the first part of chapter two, perhaps one of the most well-known parts of Ephesians, we've got an amazing set of contrasts in what is perhaps one of the most well-known descriptions of salvation, as Paul contrasts the position of believers formerly or then with their position now. The change being brought about by God through Christ entirely due to his mercy and love. As our salvation is entirely through God's grace, twice, Paul says, it is by grace you have been saved. Salvation is entirely a gift, but it's not a no-strings-attached gift. In that sense, anyway. Why are we saved? In verse 10, chapter 2, verse 10, we're told, we are saved to do good works which God has prepared in advance for believers to do. 
We're saved so that we can live lives that demonstrate what God always intended for humans. A life lived in relationship with God, working with him and for him. To be in the words of God's call to Abraham, a light to the nations. So that's the first part of chapter 2. And in the second part, we've still got this kind of contrast, the formerly and the then. But in this case, the contrast is between being excluded from God's people and far from him and being brought near to God because they are now God's people. These are Gentiles. Or, or the Ephesian church are Gentiles. And as Paul says, they were formerly without hope and without God. And then he gives one of the great but nows of the Bible. I love the but nows of the Bible because an amazing truth follows that contrasts the past with the present for the believers. And we need to take note of the but nows. Formerly, the Gentile believers were underprivileged in comparison to Israel because Israel enjoyed all the privileges of being God's people. But now... The Gentile believers enjoy a relationship with God as full members of his people. They don't have to go through, or the males don't have to go through circumcision. They don't have to keep the food laws, not in their entirety anyway. And, and it's just transformed their situation. They are now part of the people of God. And it's easy for us sitting here in 21st century Britain and most of us, I am assuming, are Gentile, would be considered to be Gentiles, to realise just how much God has done in bringing us into his family. Yes, we know it's cost him everything on the cross and all of that, but what he has done. Before the cross, we could not come to him unless we became a proselyte, and that for the males meant circumcision, ow, and for the ladies, well, never mind what it meant for the ladies, but we were second class, Gentiles were second class citizens. Now, the transformation because of what Christ has done. And he goes on. Christ's work of reconciliation is not just about the fact that we have been reconciled to God, but there is a horizontal reconciliation between Jews and Gentiles, which was the fundamental division at that time. The old humanity of Jew over here and Gentile here or Jew there and Gentile there has been replaced by one new humanity out of the two. There is a new creation. And here Paul's not talking about individual new creations, of course, though we are, but a corporate new creation, the church. The new humanity he has brought into being. And then Paul, as he likes to do, shifts the analogy again to that of a building, and more specifically to a temple. It's not that the believers here, in this case, are individually the temple of, God's, of God, although Paul does call us that in 1 Corinthians 6, we're individually uh, temples of the living God and Holy Spirit dwelling within us. But corporately, the people are God's temple built on Christ Jesus. Corporately, the church is Christ's body. The church is God's temple. And living out that vertical relationship has as its corollary the responsibility of living out horizontal relationships within the church. So you are all living stones. Okay? You're forming the temple. You might have rough areas. You know, when you've got to build something, I mean, I, you know, anything I built would fall down, a bit like a sandcastle, really. But nevertheless, 
you know, you put things together, you hold them together. They might not be perfectly aligned, and you rub them together so that they do. And that's what some of us have got to do. We've got to rub along and rub off those rough bits, those rough bits, as this temple is being formed. This horizontal relationship that we have with one another. And why might that matter? As Paul continues, he makes an incredible statement in chapter 3, verse 10. He says, his intent, that is God's intent, was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. Do you realize what Paul is saying here? He's saying that by its very existence, the church proclaims to the principalities and powers that their rule has been decisively broken and that all things are subject to Christ. The church is a pattern, a model, if you like, of the community that is to come and is a witness to the powers opposed to God, of God's incredible wisdom. And you know what wisdom is, don't you, biblically speaking? Knowledge, it's not knowledge, you know that. Knowledge is knowing a tomato is a fruit. Wisdom is not putting it in a fruit salad. That's the difference. Anyway, there you go. So that's God's wisdom. He knows not to put tomatoes in a fruit salad. So take a look around you anyway. Those with whom we are sharing this act of worship this morning as members together of Christ's church, his body, are proclaiming through our very existence that the principalities and powers have been broken. Yes. Yes, they have, and we proclaim that just by our very existence as members of Christ's body. And then Paul gives his amazing prayer for the believers. And having given, therefore, the readers an incredible insight into their identity as believers within the church... In chapters 1 to 3, Paul changes his focus at the beginning of chapter 4. If the first three chapters are about God's grace and his salvation and what has been brought about in their lives and how their identity has changed from the then to the but now, the final three chapters of the letter, chapters 4 to 6, are about the consequences of that but now for their lives. And so the opening section of the second half of this letter is an appeal to the believers to live lives that enable the unity in the church to which Paul has referred to be a reality. How is that to be done? Well, Paul gives the answer in chapter 4, verse 1, where he urges the believers to live a life worthy of the calling they have received. Live in lives of humility, gentleness, patience, and love for one another. The believers are to be made new in the attitude of their minds and to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. And that was part of the reading that, we were, uh, that you heard earlier in verses 23 to 24 of chapter 4. But what does that mean in practical terms? And so we come to, a pa- to our passage. I told you I'd get there. I knew I would. In our passage, Paul gets down to specifics as he names Lying versus truth-telling in verse 25. Anger versus not sinning in your anger, verses 26 to 27. Stealing versus working honestly in verse 28. And unwholesome talk versus speech that builds up in verse 29. Now, it's not difficult to see how three of those involve speech. Two of them are clearly speech-related. And the second, anger versus not sinning in your anger, involves speech, I think, as so frequently when we are angry, 
the speech that comes out of our mouths is certainly not wholesome. And it's worth noting that Paul doesn't say, don't get angry, but that when you do, don't sin. Now, I'm going to be honest here and say that I've never managed that. And if anyone here this morning has cracked that one, can you please come and tell me, because I need some help. Just ask my my husband and my daughter. However, what is the believer's primary motivation for living lives that tell the truth, that don't sin when angry, and speak words that build up? The answer is given in verse 30, that the believers should not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom they were sealed for the day of redemption. And then to reinforce the point of the importance of of our horizontal relationships, Paul instructs the believers to get rid of, in verse 31, bitterness, rage, anger, brawling, slander, and every form of malice, all of which, or most of which, are likely to uh, to involve some form of speech. What happens if those things, bitterness, rage, anger, brawling, slander, every form of malice, lying, unwholesome talk, if they're present between people? Relationships break down. And Paul is concerned for the unity of the church, that those relationships do not break down. Those attitudes, those behaviours cannot be allowed to flourish in the community of believers. Rather, believers should be kind and compassionate to one another. Forgiving each other, just as in Christ, God forgave you. Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children, and live a life of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Now, that's a distinctive way of living. It's motivated by what Christ has done, and is truly a way of life that is worthy of the calling they and we have received. And it's part of what it means to become like Christ. So let me ask you a question. How is your speech? Do verses 25 to 27 and verse 29, the lying versus truth-telling in your anger, not sinning, and unwholesome talk versus speech that builds up, do those verses challenge you about the way you use words? We all know, I'm sure we do, that the playground chant of sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me, is the most complete and utter rubbish ever spoken. But have you realised that your speech affects the Holy Spirit? As Paul says in verse 30, we should be careful with speech because lying, angry words and unwholesome talk grieve the Holy Spirit. We don't just hurt others with our careless use of words, we grieve the Holy Spirit. And may God forgive me for the times I've done that. Is your speech truthful? Does your speech build others up? Does your speech reflect kindness, compassion and forgiveness? Is your conversation, as Paul says elsewhere, full of grace, seasoned with salt? That's in Colossians chapter 4, verse 6. LST is a community of God's people. It's not perfect, but Paul was a realist. And he knew the Ephesian church was not perfect. But he expected the believers to recognise that they were an important community. They were a community, and that is important. And that speech not properly used can destroy the unity of the community. How good are you at using your tongue? I don't mean clearly, can you use your tongue? Some of us will be very good at doing so. 
But what is your speech like that comes from our mouths using our tongues? Some of you will think of what James wrote in, chapter th- in James chapter 3, verses 1 to 12. And now I am going to read that in case you were wondering if I ever would. So, beginning at verse 3, when we put bits into the mouths of horses to make them obey us, we can turn the whole animal. Or take ships as an example. Although they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are steered by a very small rudder wherever the pilot wants to go. Likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. Consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. The tongue also is a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole body, sets the whole course of one's life on fire, and is itself set on fire by itself. All kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, and sea creatures are being tamed, and have been tamed by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With the tongue we praise our Lord and Father. We've been doing that this morning. And with it we curse human beings who have been made in God's likeness. How dare we? Every human being is made in the image of God. And how can we praise God as we have been doing this morning and then go out that door and start knocking one another? Out of the same mouth come praise and curse. And I'm continuing in James. My brothers and sisters, this should not be. Can both fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring? My brothers and sisters, can a fig tree bear olives or a grapevine bear figs? Neither can a salt spring produce fresh water. We have got to live consistent lives. A fig tree bearing olives, that's just not going to happen. Salt water coming out of fresh water, it's not going to happen. We need to have tongues that are under God's control. (coughs) Now, I don't want to get into the Paul James question as to whether they would have agreed with one another on a whole range of issues, but they would have agreed on this. Words matter. The way we use our tongue, our speech matters. Now, I can hear most of you saying here this, this morning going, well, of course it does, Julie, of course it does. But I wonder what Paul would write today. I'm sure he'd retain this teaching about maintaining the community's unity through the correct use of speech. But I think he would also write about the use of words as found on social media. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm not adept at using social media. You just ask my 19-year-old daughter. But I'm sure most of you here are very adept at using it. But as scarcely a day goes by without a celebrity getting into trouble by what, by what they have written on a social media platform. But what about the church, the community at LST? It can be easy to use the anonymity of some social media sites to use words that, if not lies, certainly don't build the other up and are often words said in anger. (coughs) Paul might have written, if he was writing today, do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths or any unwholesome words be written on social media but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen to you and those who read your posts. Now, I am aware this morning that some of you here will have been deeply hurt by others' words. In some cases, words said many years ago, but whether recent or years ago, their impact is still being felt by you. Or perhaps you've been hurt by something written on social media. 
Or perhaps some of you here this morning are aware that your speech or use of social media is not always helpful for building others up, but unwholesome and even destructive. For different reasons, whether you have been hurt by others' words or have hurt others by your use of words, please know that there are people here this morning, including myself, who would be happy to pray with you. So I want to return to where I began in prayer and that actually we prayed earlier on in the service. The psalmist might have written, May the words of my mouth and the words I write on social media and this meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, Lord, my rock and my redeemer. I hope that will be your prayer today and in the future. Amen. Thank you for listening to the London School of Theology podcast. To find out more about LST and our courses, please visit our website 